Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Hey guys, Kent here. Wanted to add a quick note before we begin that we experienced some technical difficulties recording this week's teaching, so the audio that you will hear is noticeably lower quality than normal. I think you can still make out most of what is said, but if you have trouble, feel free to reference the PDF that we make available over at citychurchknox.com each week. Thanks for bearing with us, and we'll be sure to have everything squared away before next Sunday. Enjoy. Again, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of ours. Uh, There should be some underneath each seat. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be here in just a bit. Um, If you are brand new, if this is your first time with us uh, on a Sunday morning, first, welcome. Uh, We're super glad that you're here. We've had a lot of new faces coming around recently, uh, which is exciting. Uh, The only thing I don't like about it is it means that I can no longer meet every new face that walks in. There was a time in our church where I could do that. Somebody new walked in, and I was like, knew immediately that they were new, and I could talk to them and get to know them, uh, but I just can't do that anymore. So if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, come talk to me before or after. After the gathering, I'd absolutely love uh, the opportunity to get to know you uh, a little bit, but thanks for being here. Uh, If you are new, though, let me just catch you up a little bit on where we've been for the past few weeks, just so you kind of know what to expect this morning. Uh, Really, for the past three weeks, we have been in a series all about the Bible, specifically how to read and study the Bible. So two weeks ago, what we talked about was what the Bible is exactly. What is this strange collection of books that sits in front of us that a lot of us are committing our lives to getting to know and love and learn from? We talked about what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. And then last week, in last week's teaching, Eric was up here, Eric's a pastor in training with us, and he talked a little bit about what the Bible is for. So now that we knew what the Bible is exactly, what is this book supposed to do? What's it supposed to accomplish in us when we sit down to read it. So that was last week. This week, with all of that big picture stuff kind of out of the way, we're going to try to get an extremely practical starting this morning and for the next two weeks. This morning, we want to start trying to answer the question, the burning question on all of our minds, how do we actually read it? Now that we know what it is, now that we know what it's for, How should we actually go about studying it on a day-to-day basis? Today we're going to actually begin learning together how to read and study the Bible and let it do, let it accomplish what it was meant to do and accomplish. Now, if you have been around church for very long in your life, you have probably come across one or two or 25 different Bible reading methods. Usually they come in the form of acronyms. I don't know why Christians like cheesy acronyms so much, but they really do. And so they often come in the form of acronyms. So you've got the SOAP method, S-O-A-P, which stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. There's the GROW method, G-R-O-W, which stands for Greet, Read, Observe, and Write. There's the POWER method, 
which stands for prayer, observe, write, envision, response. There's the funk method, which stands for feel, understand, notice, and know. So there are so many Bible reading methods out there, and they are all so incredibly cheesy that most of you did not even realize I completely made up that last one on the spot. <laughs> that doesn't exist. But most of you are just like, well, this sounds like something Christians would come up with, so I'm sure it exists out there. So there are so many Bible reading methods out there, to be honest. And here's the thing. I think some of those methods are great methods. But here's something I've noticed when it comes to at least most of them that I have heard of. A lot of those Bible reading methods tend to be a little bit too specific. Meaning, they work really well for certain parts of the Bible, to read and study certain parts of the Bible, but they don't work as well when it comes to other parts of the Bible. For example, one Bible reading method that I actually like a whole lot says that we should ask the question of every passage that we read, what does this passage demand of me? What does this passage demand of me? Now, I think that's a great question to ask, especially when it comes to the teaching and instructional parts of the Bible, when it comes to something Jesus is teaching or the Apostle Paul is teaching in one of his letters to the churches. I think asking the question, what does this demand of me, is fantastic. But what about other parts of the Bible? For, for instance, last week, if you're going through the reading plan list that we put out, last week, a lot of us read Genesis 23. There's this passage where Abraham essentially haggles with the Hittites, this other people group, about a place to bury his wife's body after she dies. These people want to give Abraham a burial location for, for free, and Abraham insists on paying for it, and they just sort of argue about that for a little while, and then the story ends. So let me ask you the question when it comes to that passage. What does that story demand of us? I mean, is it like... Is it saying that we should always insist on paying full price for a burial site? Like, is that the point of Genesis 23? I don't think that's what it's getting at. In fact, I don't know that that particular passage demands anything of us, right? Other than that we read it and listen to it. So some of these Bible reading methods, I think, can almost be so specific that they work really well for some parts of the Bible and not so well for other parts. And one reason for some of that one reason that these sort of one-size-fits-all methods don't work so great with some parts of the Bible is because, as we've already mentioned in this series, the Bible is actually made up of a lot of different types of literature. It's because different parts of the Bible are actually meant to be read in different ways. If you remember two weeks ago, we said the big picture, the Bible is made up of these three different primary types of literature. We'll just work through these on the screen real quick as a refresher. First, it's made up, 44% of the Bible is made up of narrative. Narrative is the type of literature that simply recounts for us things that have happened. Examples would be books like the book of Genesis, the first half or so of the book of Exodus, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, the book of Acts in the New Testament. These are examples of types of narrative in the Bible. The second type of literature in the Bible is poetry. Poetry makes up right at a third of the Bible that we have today. Poetry is an artistic form of writing that appeals to the imagination to describe an experience of some sort. 
So examples of poetry would be books like Psalms, Song of Solomon, large portions of prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, just to name a few. The last kind of literature in the Bible is what's called prose discourse, or just discourse for short. 23% of the Bible is discourse. It's writing that seeks to communicate concepts or instructions or ideas in a really direct way. So examples of discourse would be books like Leviticus, most of the book of Deuteronomy, the portions of the Gospels where Jesus is teaching something directly, and pretty much all of the New Testament letters like Colossians and Ephesians and books like that. So these are the types of literature that we find in our Bibles. And then you obviously have a lot of books in the Bible that are made up of multiple of those types of genres. They're kind of a blend of two or even all three. But because the Bible is made up of these three very different types of literature, then it would make sense that some of the methods that work really well for some types of literature wouldn't work that well for others. We don't read an ancient love poem between a husband and a wife like we find in Song of Solomon. We don't read that the same way that we read a historical account of the early church like we find in the book of Acts. Those were actually written for very different purposes. They were written in very different ways. And so it would make sense that we read them in different ways. So in light of all of that, here's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're going to take one of those three types of literature each week and talk in detail about how to read it. How to come across that type of literature in the Bible and read it and study it and learn from it well. So each type of literature will actually have its own set of questions for us to ask as we're reading it. And as we do this, we want it to be as practical and as helpful as possible. So each of these next three weeks will be part teaching and part lab. What I mean by that is that we'll spend the first 10 to 15 minutes of each week talking about how to read that type of literature in the Bible. And then we'll spend the rest of the teaching actually doing it, actually learning how to read specific passages in the Bible with these sets of questions that we give you. So the goal is that when you walk out of here each Sunday for the next three weeks, you will feel like you at least have a decent grasp on how to read and study those types of passages in the Bible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. So today, we are going to talk about how to read the genre of literature that makes up the largest cross-section of the Bible, and that's biblical narrative, as we mentioned earlier. Narrative, just as a reminder, is any part of the Bible that is simply explaining to us what happened at some point in history. So if it is telling a story or recounting events that happened at some point, it would be considered to be narrative. So let's get started by just looking at how the Apostle Paul tells us that we should read narrative in 1 Corinthians 10. So hopefully you're there by now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here, Paul is talking specifically about how we read Old Testament narrative, but I think it loosely applies to how we read all narrative in the Bible as well. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. Now these things, in context, these things refer to the narrative portions of the Old Testament. These things, Paul says, took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So according to Paul, here in this passage, one of the purposes 
in us reading the narrative accounts in the Bible is that we might see them as negative examples. That we might learn what not to do, how not to live. So in a backwards way, they actually are teaching us something. They're just teaching us things by process of elimination, right? So narratives in the Bible, we might say, are trying to tell you how to live, sort of like the movie Christmas Vacation is trying to tell you how to have a good Christmas vacation. You track it with me? It does it by showing you how to do it wrong. <laughs> and in hopes that you will draw conclusions from that about how to do it right. It teaches us by negative example. Keep reading. Paul is going to give us some specific examples of what he means by all of this, starting in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And make sure you pay attention to this next part, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So all of these things that we read in the narrative portions of the Bible, they were written down, Paul says, for our instruction as examples to us. Put another way, they are there so that we might take note of how these people lived, how God interacted with them as a result, and from that we might gain instruction on how we should live. Instead, that's the purpose of narrative accounts in the Bible. Does that make sense so far? Fairly straightforward, right? So knowing all of that, let's take what Paul just said about narrative passages in the Bible, and let's translate it into a set of questions that we can ask when we read narrative in the Bible. So I'll go through these pretty quickly at first, and then, like I said, we'll go back through and actually see how they work in practice. But if you like taking notes, you may want to jot these down. Questions to ask of narrative passages in the Bible. First, what is happening in this passage? What is happening in this passage? Before you can get anywhere with a narrative passage of Scripture, you have to be able to wrap your mind around what happened in that passage. So this can be a sentence or two. For some passages, it may take a little bit more than that. But just in your own words, try to recap what happened in the passage you just read? What is happening in this story? Second, where does this narrative fit in the larger story of Scripture? Where does this narrative fit in the larger story of Scripture? So as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we have to always remember that what we're reading in the Bible at any point is one unified story. Meaning you can't just pluck a narrative passage out of the Bible and out of its context and expect to understand all that it's saying. The Bible doesn't work like that. You've got to ask, where are we in the bigger story? What happened before this passage? What's about to happen? Where are we in the story of the Bible? What part of the story are we in? Next. Next question is ask, what does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? What does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? So before the Bible is a story about anything else, Scripture is first a story about God. It's first about God. So we need to figure out what the narrative shows us about who God is and what he's like. 
What are God's actions in the story? What does God say or not say in the story? And what can we conclude from that about who God is, about what his character is like? Next, what does this passage tell us about the nature and tendencies of humanity? What does this passage tell us about the nature and tendencies of humanity? Next, what do the, pa- what do the actions of the people in the passage tell us about humanity and the types of things that we tend to struggle with. So maybe what you see in the story is not true of like every single human being to ever walk the earth, but still, what patterns, what tendencies do you see in this passage of scripture that is sort of indicative or representative of things that humanity struggles with in general? And what Parts of the passage, do you see a tendency that you've seen in yourself or you've seen in others? In what ways do the people in the story sin or miss the point or fail to rely on or acknowledge God in some way? And last question, how does this passage point us to the person and work of Jesus? How does this passage point us to the person and work of Jesus? So lastly, most importantly, how does this passage point us to who Jesus is and what he would one day accomplish? How does it set up a problem that only Jesus can solve? How does it present a particular sin for which only Jesus is the answer? How does it depict a flawed picture of humanity that Jesus came to set right in some way? Lastly, if we want to know how this passage points us to Jesus. Now, as a bonus tip on this one, if you're struggling to know how a particular passage points to Jesus, I would encourage you to go back and look at the answers to the two questions before this one. So in general, if you can conclude what a passage tells us about the character of God, and you can conclude what it tells us about the nature and tendencies of humanity, In general, those two things can set you up pretty well to see how the passage points us to Jesus. So, when in doubt, reference the two questions before this one. So, now that we have our questions, let's learn how to use them. Are you guys excited? More excited than I thought you guys would be. I love that. Cool. So, for starters, let's use these questions to help us read a story that some of you might have heard. If you've been around church for a long, you may have heard of this story. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. If you're here and you're newer to the Bible, Feel free to stop by the table of contents. No shame in that whatsoever. Judges can be a hard book to find. Uh, Or just use one of our Bibles, and the page number will be up on the screen anyway. Judges chapter 6. So while you're getting there, let me just give you a little bit of background on what we're about to read. So Gideon, in the Bible, was a prophet for Israel. He was also one of the so-called judges of Israel, which was like a word that meant military commander or military leader for the nation of Israel. And here in Judges 6, we're going to read a story about an interaction that Gideon has with God right before he goes into a military battle. So let's read through the story starting in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, if, as you have said. So if you really are going to do what you said you would do, God, Gideon says, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. 
If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. In other words, if I'm going to trust you, God, I need a sign that you can be trusted. So he does all this, verse 38, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. God did exactly what Gideon asked for. He performed the sign that Gideon had set up. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test just once more with the fleece. This time, Gideon says, please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground, and on the ground all around it, let there be dew. In other words, do the exact same thing you just did, God, but do it in reverse this time. Verse 40. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. There's our passage. Everybody clear on what that means for your life today? So there's our story. Let's first ask, what is happening in this passage? The question that a lot of you that are new to the Bible are asking very much so right now, right? What is happening in this passage exactly? Probably the easiest way of summarizing this story is that Gideon asked God for two specific signs, and God gives them to them. It's probably the simplest way of putting it. Gideon asks God for two signs, and God gives him those signs. He asks God for proof or for confirmation that God will be with him in this next military battle. God does that, and then he asks for the same sign, but the other way around. He says if God does these things, if God performs these signs for Gideon, then he will know that God is with him in this battle. And God actually does it. He does exactly what Gideon asked both times. That's what happens in the story. Next question. Where does this narrative fit in the larger story of Scripture? I'll just go ahead and tell you, this question right here is massively important to getting what is said in this passage. Massively important. Because in the chapter leading up to this passage about Gideon and the fleece, what we notice is that Gideon actually has a trust problem when it comes to God. Namely, that he doesn't trust God. That's the problem. So what we find is that despite how many times in the story, God very obviously demonstrates that Gideon, that Gideon can trust him. Despite how many times God shows Gideon, hey, you can trust me with things, Gideon is just not buying it. He's not believing that God can be trusted over and over again in the story. So if you follow Gideon's story in its entirety, this story that we just read in Judges 6 actually becomes a rather embarrassing moment in the life of Gideon. Because this whole thing with the fleece, the sign that he asked God for, it is the epitome of Gideon's trust problem with God. It's actually the low point of the story. It's meant to sort of be this like face palm moment where despite everything, Gideon still needs one more sign from God because he doesn't trust God in the first place. To the point that God actually does precisely the sign that Gideon asked for and what does Gideon say? I need another sign. I need you to do the opposite of what you just did because maybe this was a fluke over here and so maybe I need to see you do it again. This is actually a low point in the life of Gideon. So, the point of Gideon's story, listen, 
is not that we should ask for signs like Gideon did. That's not the point of what's being communicated. But rather that we should not be that slow to trust in who God is and in God's presence with us. That's actually the point of the story. So what's interesting to me is I've actually heard a lot of Christians reference this story as if it's an example of what you should do when you're unsure about a decision. Right? That you should ask for a sign. I've actually heard Christians pray, God, will you give us a sign like you gave Gideon? But if you understand the context of the story, if you actually read it in the grand sweeping story of Scripture, even just based on the chapter or two before it, what you'll find is that this actually isn't something for us to imitate. It's actually something for us to guard against. It's something for us to be careful of that we don't so frequently doubt the obvious presence of God with us in order to ask him to give us signs that he's still with us. That's actually what we're meant to learn from the story. But if you just read the story about the fleece on its own, without asking where you are in the biblical story, you couldn't miss that that's the point that it's making. Right? So, next question. What does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? Well, a few things. First, I think it tells us that God was indeed with Gideon, even when he asked Gideon to do that God was with Gideon even when he called Gideon to difficult things. Like that's one thing that comes through in the story. The other thing that I think we could mention is that the story shows us that God is trustworthy even when we struggle and fail to trust him. That God is trustworthy even when we struggle and fail to trust him. Even though God has shown Gideon time and time again that he is trustworthy, he still gives Gideon the sign that he asked for to communicate that God is with him, that God can be trusted in the story. So God is with Gideon, and he is trustworthy. Next question. What does this passage tell us about the nature and tendencies of humanity? Well, from the life of Gideon, I think it tells us that when, that we are often slow to trust God and take him at his word. I think it tells us that we are often slow to trust God and take him at his word. Gideon in the story is terrified and anxious about God being with him, even though God has shown him time and time again that he's with Gideon. Despite all the evidence that we often have that God can be trusted, we often fail to trust him. Has anybody ever noticed that tendency in them before? I mean, I've definitely never noticed it in me, just wondering if you guys have. <laughs> so let's ask the question lastly, in light of all of that, how does this passage point us to the person and work of Jesus? How does this passage point us to Jesus? Well, one would be that Jesus demonstrates through the cross that God can be trusted. Jesus demonstrates through the cross that God can be trusted. Romans 8 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning, if God can be trusted at the cross, God can be trusted, period. Right? If he did not even withhold his own son's life on our behalf, 
surely he can be trusted with whatever situation, whatever circumstance it is that we are facing right now. So for us as followers of Jesus, in the moments where we are tempted to doubt God's presence with us, when we are tempted to not trust God and what he is calling us to in our lives, when we hit those moments as followers of Jesus today, we look not to signs or to fleeces laying on the ground, we look to the cross. That's what we look to when we struggle to trust who God is, because if God can be trusted in the cross, he can be trusted, period. That's the point of this story, and that's how it points us forward to Jesus. So, you've got one under your belt. How's it feel? Good? Okay? Love it. Now, keep in mind, if that seemed really intimidating to you, like if you're here, you're newer to the Bible, newer to church, and you're just like, I don't know where you got any of that from. That's totally fine. Keep in mind, I didn't just come up with this on the spot, right? Like This actually took some time of sitting with this passage and combing through it with the questions that we gave. But does that at least seem like something that with some practice you could learn how to do? Does it seem achievable, at least? Cool. So let's do one more before we're done. This one from the New Testament. Luke chapter 5. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. So we probably won't be able to do this with every single passage that we cover for the next three weeks. But I'm actually trying to use mostly passages that we've been reading through in the Bible reading plan. I don't know if you caught that. We're going to try to do that as much as we can uh, for the next three weeks. Probably won't be able to do it every time. But Luke chapter 5. So I think most of us read this maybe uh, a week or two ago in the Bible reading plan. Luke 5. We're going to pick it up in 27. So first, what we're going to read about is an interaction that Jesus has with a tax collector in the Bible a subsequent party that Jesus gets invited to and goes to, and then an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees about the party that he went to. That's the basics of what we're covering in this passage. This is a narrative account in the Bible from Jesus' own life. Let's read through it together, starting in verse 27. After this, it says, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's leave it there. There's our story. Let's run through our questions with it. First, what is happening in this passage? What's happening in this passage? I think we could sum it up this way. Jesus' acceptance of tax collectors and sinners get him in trouble with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus' acceptance of tax collectors and sinners get him in trouble with sort of the religious elite of the day. So we've talked about this in detail before on Sunday, so I won't go into great detail about it, but just for you to know, uh, tax collectors in the Bible's day were not just like ancient IRS agents. That's not who they were. Tax collectors were actually traders. They were people that had effectively sold their soul to the occupying government at the time, which didn't exactly set well with the Jewish establishment that was being oppressed by that occupying government. 
So as a result of all of this, tax collectors were seen as highly immoral, and they usually kept highly immoral company. So the religious elite were not big fans of Jesus and his disciples going to a party, a feast at one of the people's houses where a bunch of tax collectors and immoral people were present. That's why they don't like what Jesus and his disciples were doing. Second question, where does this narrative fit in the larger story of Scripture? Where does this story fit in the larger story of Scripture? Jesus is relatively early in his ministry, and he has just begun to call disciples to follow him. Early in his ministry, just started calling disciples to follow him. We're also in the early chapters of Luke, which if you spend much time in the Gospel of Luke, the author is sort of using Jesus' interactions with all these different types of people to show us who Jesus is at his core. He's slowly revealing the identity of Jesus to his readers. And what we find, especially in the early chapters of Luke, is that all of the people that you would expect to be drawn to Jesus are actually repelled by him. And all of the people that you would not expect to want anything to do with Jesus are drawn to Jesus. You start picking up on this pattern as you read through the opening chapters of Luke. So that's where we are in the story. Next question. What does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? What does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? First, I think we could say it shows us that God is merciful. God is merciful. As evidenced by Jesus extending grace and love and acceptance to these highly immoral people in the story. So apparently, Jesus has not come to planet Earth to just give his stamp of approval to people that were religious and just needed something else to do. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus came, rather, to call a whole new class of people, a whole new demographic of people into his kingdom, to invite them into his family, his way of thinking about the world. Second, I think this passage also tells us that God has nothing to offer those who don't think they need mercy. He has nothing to offer those who don't think they need mercy. He says at the end of the passage, I haven't, called, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Translation, if you think you're good on your own, and if you think your morality has earned you right standing with God, and you don't think you have any sin that might be a barrier between you and God, Jesus has not come to call you. That's not what Jesus came for. He came to call sinners to repentance. So on the other hand, if you are aware of your sin, if you're aware of your shortcomings, if you're aware of where you don't measure up, maybe you're even very, very aware of it on a regular basis, then you are precisely the type of person that Jesus has brought his kingdom to earth for. I think that's what this passage tells us about the nature and character of God. Next question. What does this passage tell us about the nature and tendencies of humanity? What does this passage tell us about the nature and tendencies of humanity? I think it tells us, one, that people are often quick to draw lines around who God can and can't accept. I think people are really quick to do that, which honestly is just another way of saying that we like to try to force God into accepting who we accept and reject who we reject. 
How often do we try to say, oh, uh, God, you're not allowed to save those kinds of people? The people on the other side of the political aisle? No, I, I don't think you should have anything to do with them. How often do we say, oh, these are the types of people that can be in God's family, these are the types of people that cannot? And that's exactly what we see the Pharisees and the religious elite doing in this passage. And I think it's a tendency that we as humans have in general. Lastly, how does this passage point us to the person and work of Jesus? How does this passage point us to the person and work of Jesus? Well, for starters, the story is about Jesus, right? So that was a given in the story. Like he's in the story itself, and that, that is fairly obvious to most of us. But more than that, I think Jesus' statement at the end indicates that the crew of people he came for, again, is sinners that need repentance. Meaning, those who do not see themselves as needing to repent will find themselves outside the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. But at the same time, here's what we know. We know from other places in the Bible that that doesn't mean that God just turns a blind eye to sin and injustice in our Exodus tells us, when it introduces us to who God is, and God tells us exactly what he's like in Exodus, what it shows us is that he actually says specifically, I will by no means clear the guilty. That's not who God is. God doesn't see injustice and wrongdoing and just say, hey, that's not a big deal. Like Levi in the story that he calls, Levi is a tax collector. He is guilty of extorting and taking advantage of an already oppressed group of people in the ancient world. So God is not just going to notice that and respond by going, oh, well, I mean, who really cares? It's not really that big of a deal. So the question that we are faced with in this passage is how can God remain just? How can he remain the God who cares for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden? How can he be that God while still inviting into his kingdom those who trample on the oppressed, those who take advantage of the oppressed, those who make their suffering worse. How can God do both of those things? How can he be just and invite these types of people into his family? And that's exactly what the cross is all about. On the cross, Jesus endures the justice do each and every sinner, each and every act of sin that they committed, and absorbs all of that justice into himself on the cross. So as a result, he can invite anyone and everyone into God's kingdom if they are willing to repent, because he knows that their sin will be addressed through his death and resurrection. That's how it's possible. That's how God can remain just. Romans tells us that it shows us how God can remain both just and justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. That's one big way that this story points to Jesus. So does that make sense? Do you see how all of this works? When we read through the Bible this way, we use these questions to help us analyze a particular narrative passage. Does it make sense how that all works? Somewhat? Cool. So, what, what we need to do next is just talk about what is the purpose of narrative passages in the Bible? So now that we kind of know how to read them, we got you know maybe this page full of notes and these things in our heads that we've drawn out of the story, what should it generate in us as a response? 
Well, I would say at the end of the day, the purpose of the entire Bible, not just the narrative passages in the Bible, but the entire Bible, is that it would draw us to worship. The point of these stories is that they would lead us to worship. We are meant to read through these stories in the Bible and see, on one hand, the unbelievable self-destructive tendencies of humanity. How humanity just keeps missing the point over and over again. How they keep losing the plot line over and over and over again. But we're meant to see, on the other hand, how God does not give up on his people. How he does not abandon them time and time again. He rescues them out of their sin. He brings them out of their brokenness. He invites them into his kingdom and his family. And he gives them new identities that they can begin to walk in and out of. That's the point of narratives in the Bible, is that we would read these stories about God and his people and how they relate to one another, the good and the bad, and that we would be drawn as a result to worship who God is and specifically what God accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection that makes all of this possible. That means that relationship can go on even despite the brokenness of humanity on every turn of the page in the Bible. So, that's what we're going to do next. In light of all of that, we're just going to have some time to respond in worship to who God is. We're going to sing about God's faithfulness to us as his people, how we both see his faithfulness in the pages of the Bible and how we see his faithfulness in our own life. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, it's hard for me to see God's faithfulness in life. Well, that's a really good reason for studying the scriptures, right? Because even when we may not see it in our own life, even when it's difficult for us to see God's presence with us, his faithfulness to us in our own lives, we get to see it in here. We get to see how he's been faithful throughout history to thousands and thousands and thousands of his people. And we get to let that draw us to worship. And maybe through that we might start to see his faithfulness to us. So we're going to have time just to respond in worship. We're going to sing about his faithfulness to us. As part of that, we'll pass the offering baskets around. You can give as a response to seeing God's faithfulness in your own life. That's really what that's all about. Offerings are not this obligatory thing that we do because we feel guilty if we don't give. We give out an overflow of what we understand God to have given to us through Jesus. And so that will be a part of it. We'll take communion. Communion specifically is an act of worship. It remembers what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And so if that's part of your life, if you have submitted your life to that reality, what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, you're invited to take communion. You've got tables in the back and in the front. So let me pray for us as we transition into a time of response and worship. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what we get to read about in every page of the scriptures about your faithfulness to your people despite your people. God, thank you that the story of the scriptures is not about our ability to get things right. God, it's about your ability to we have messed them up. 
God, thank you that you do not give up on your people. That we see throughout the story of Israel that you come to them time and time again. You offer them grace upon grace upon grace. God, I pray that we would see ourselves through that lens. God, that we would be drawn to worship by your faithfulness to your people. So God, I know there are probably plenty of us in here right now that um, are just having a difficult time um, seeing that, resonating with that. Maybe we feel like it's been years since we've encountered your faithfulness. But God, I pray that in the pages of the scriptures and maybe even the words to these songs that we're about to sing, that you would that you would remind us of who you are even when we don't experience it firsthand. God, that in in the pages of the scriptures and who you have been to your people throughout history, we would find hope, we would find encouragement, we would find endurance, and we would find faith. God, we would ask that you would use the narrative passages in the Bible to create that in us by your spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen.